if that's the new way of living, we need to adapt. We need to come up with solutions. We can't have lip service or denial or anything. You got to fess up. You got to stand up and say, this shit is happening. I don't want it to happen. I don't want bushfires. That's right. But you need to know that someone's going to handle this. Someone's going to step up and say, I got this, guys. You know, I can do something here. You need to know that. And communities need to know that, that it isn't hopeless. You know, when you talk about hope, you know, you walk into Grantham a few days after the flood and my, the hope meter was pretty low. Leaders have to come in and offer that. You know, they got to fill up the tank. Mm. Somebody's got to stand up and say, hang on, hang on, hang on. Osher, everybody else. I, I hear you. I, I feel it. There's anxiety there. There's concern. We got some plans. And this is what that plan is. That is environmental engineer and former director of the Strengthening Grantham Project, Jamie Simmons. And this is Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, This podcast is simply a conversation, hopefully, that will help you make today better than yesterday for yourself, trying to help you become the best version of you you can be in the best way you can be, living the best life you can live in the situation that you're in. That's it. Just making it better than yesterday for you. Because if you make it better than yesterday for you, it becomes better for everyone around you. And if enough of us do it, then shit, the world got better. That's really it. If you don't know who I am, I'm a TV guy and a podcasting guy and a book writing guy and a family guy from Sydney, Australia. I sometimes count roses on the television. I sometimes officiate singing fights between giant budgies. Oh, no, it was a rainbow lorikeet and a massive spider. I've got two kids. One's uh, nearly 16. One's just turned 16 weeks. And um, I'm uh, currently uh, sitting in the downstairs of our new home, which is lovely. Uh, Still a bit okay, But I've stuck a few sound panels up so it doesn't echo around too much. And um, this is our show. This is my podcast. I say our because I make it with a few other people. And it's just a conversation, hopefully helping you make it better than yesterday. If you do want to get in touch with me, it's always great to hear from you. Thank you so much uh, for sending me an email. Send osheremail at gmail.com. Thank you for the questions. Thank you for the emails. Thank you for the well wishes. I got one uh, last week. It's myshout.com.au trying to help the bushfire uh, ravaged areas of our country. I, I'm sitting here, I've got the window open and I can I can smell smoke and my eyes sting and it's uh, the 10th of January, 2020. So if you're listening to this in five years, you're listening to this in 10 years, you know what happens next, all right? But I'm telling you right now, I've got the window open because it's a bit warm in here, but I can smell like someone's doing a backyard burn off two doors down, but I know for a fact that the fires are way further away from the two doors down. But I'm not telling you anything you don't know if you're in Australia right now. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know if you're listening to this in a couple of years from now. Um, so I talked about itsmyshout.com.au last week. Similarly, in the same vein, I got an email from the team at Empty Esky. Uh, we'd love you to help start the Empty Esky movement to support small businesses impacted by the fires in Australia. We're encouraging all Australians to take an Empty Esky, visit a local town that's been affected by the fire, and fill it up with local goods and produce to stimulate the local economy. So many businesses missed out on peak season trading, and we want to do something to help. It makes a perfect idea and a good idea for a road trip. Uh, they're on Instagram, Empty Esky. 
just hit pledge and try and share it with your social media followers if you want. Um, I'm not in on Instagram anymore. I like I do have an Instagram presence. I do still post things and write things there. Uh, I do write that stuff, but Haley, who used to look after this show, now looks after my Instagram and she takes care of all the DMs and comments and things. So Instagram's a, a, a one-way thing for me. I don't look at it. Uh, so email's the best way to get to me. I do always love to see where you're listening as well. I won't say who wrote this, uh, but they've sent a photo of their office, which looks pretty officey. There's an extra wide monitor with an extra wide spreadsheet written on it. Oh, good Lord. Been listening to the podcast on an ad hoc basis for 12 months thereabouts. Your openness about mental health really helps me. Thank you. Today, I've listened for three hours with an hour work meeting break after two hours of listening in which I messaged my girlfriends recommending the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I'm working at a job in the, let's just say, agricultural industry that I do not enjoy and people that do not like me, but I am trying to cherish the small moments your podcast is getting me through today. I absolutely love the Losing Weight podcast and the science of it should be taught in schools. I agree. Your 20 ideas for 2020 made me laugh a lot, but I've since deleted the Instagram app to reduce my time on it. Yay! And another one here. Lastly, if gambling money went to charity, you'd, I'd probably gamble for the first time in my life. Thanks heaps. Uh, cheers. Uh, keep your head up. Keep little Wolfie's head up. I miss seeing pictures of little Wolfie since deleting Instagram. That's okay. He'll pop up. Every now and again, you'll, you'll find him. Wow. Uh, thank you so much for emailing. I really do appreciate that. Another one came in here from Sam, first uh, fairly recent listening listener to the podcast and subscriber, which I knew about it earlier. It's become part of my daily routine. At the moment, I'm working on annual targets and objectives for a waste management company. I've just finished the podcast on getting rid of plastic from your kitchens, laundry, and bathroom. It's making me think and create an objective that I hadn't thought of previously on how it could be improved even in what we do within the office. Brilliant. Thanks for all the help you do around um, breaking the stigma and creating awareness and encouragement for people to speak out about uh, their own issues with anxiety and depression and to get the help they need. Thank you so much for, for writing that. Deborah sent a great picture of where she's listening a uh, long-time listener, first-time emailer, and it's her listening on my way home from work in freezing London, and it looks like you're on a bus. Brilliant. I'm on a bus in London. That is rad. Thank you so, so very much for listening to the show, recommending the show. That really does help us. Uh, the other thing that really, really, really helps us, if you um, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, this one came in through a fan of Greta. Oh, I guess where this is. Yeah. Love the pod. Um, nodding the whole way through. Just listen to the last episode uh, regarding the ongoing climate crisis and gambling ideas. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you go back last listen to last week's episode about when I was talking about gambling. I'm off to go see some friends tomorrow. One works for a huge gambling company as a salesperson for the poker machines, and the other as an executive assistant for a mining company. Help. Look, there's an opportunity there. There's an opportunity to talk to both of them how they, you know, how can they protect their jobs in the next couple of years? Because, look, let's be honest, there's an economic incentive for everything. That's how we got into this mess, and that's how we'll get out. There's a great opportunity for conversation there. So, um... If you're new to the show, I, uh, I've only just recently started doing this. I started thinking about what's some ideas that could make today better than yesterday, and I try to pop one out every show at least. So here's an idea that'll make today better than yesterday. A section on gum tree, which is a, um, a gum tree free is one of my favorite things in the world. If there's stuff around the house that I do not need, it doesn't go in the big red bin. Gum tree free, people pick it up, off it goes for a better life, not in landfill. It's the best. Um, so a section of gum tree for volunteers needed and volunteers wanted. Because Gumtree's got kind of like the verification protocols, at least, you know, they have phone numbers and they have at least emails of people. Hopefully we'll, you know, 
prevent people of ill intent from showing up at your front door because otherwise you need to build an app from the ground up. But yeah, so that way, if you're a punter like me, and I don't know anything about anything, I don't know nothing, all right? I've got a couple of Ryobi tools and a rake, but I'd like to lend a hand for someone who needs to rebuild after these fires. So if I can lend a hand with some manual labor, something that you can show me how to do in a couple of minutes and me and some friends can hoof it out to your place and help out, that'd be brilliant. You know, if I go like, okay, so this Sunday, me and the family are going to drive out to a fire affected area. We've got six hours. What can we do for who? Someone then goes, listen, I need someone to help me move this from there or grab these fence palings or build a pile or take a pile down or whatever. That'd be brilliant. Does Gumtree already have this? If they don't, does somebody know someone who works at Gumtree? Can someone tell someone at Gumtree about this? I wonder if we could make that happen. Because we, this is the thing, you know, the kindness that you've seen after these fires, that's our country. The arguments we see on Question Time in Parliament, the fights you see online, that is not Australia. Australia is us helping each other. Australia is people driving hundreds of kilometres outside of their city to cook for fireys while they fight these blazes. That's our country, the kindness, the care, the love, the respect, the wanting to look after each other. That's our country. That's what makes us who we are. So let's harness that because that's the movement. If, if politicians start seeing that that's what we care about, then that's what they'll start caring about because they're self-interested. I swear to God, man. Um, this, is where, this is it, folks. This is where we are. We need to talk about the fact that these bushfires, they're pretty much the opening batsmen for climate change. You can see why, like, up to about 15 years ago, we always called it global warming. If you're new to, if you're kind of younger, we called it global warming. From the 80s, we called it global warming. And then somewhere around 2004, five, they started calling it, oh, it's climate change. Mm, it's climate change. It's a change. It's a nice warm change. Oh, it's changed. No, it's a kind of softer, easier way to talk about it. It's global warming. And I guess, you know, that's what it is. Global warming explains a lot more about what's happening. Climate change is a, cl is a flowery way of putting it. Oh, it's a bit of a change. Well, this is it. Here we are. It's changed. It's changing. Here we are. This is it. This is what our world is now. This is one degree warmer, globally average warmer than it was since pre-industrial years. And um, here we are. But a lot of people want to deny it. There's a lot of people who email me, particularly after my episode about how to talk to your family and friends about global warming, climate change. And um, they go, oh, yeah, but I got laughed off the phone or people wrote back angry emails at me or they, you know, ridiculed me in Facebook posts and they posted things about Greta von Thunberg and things like that. But you can see why denial is the first stage of grief. When something so horrible as someone close to you dies or, or is diagnosed with something bad, you deny that it's even happening because it's too confronting to consider that it's real. And climate change denial, for me, that's a perfectly understandable reaction once you grasp the true scope of what is happening the true scope of what will continue to happen and how our world will be altered irrevocably. I deny it too, because it's horrid otherwise. I get it. I understand why you'd want to deny it. Yet at this point, we really are just two big fat mud crabs sitting in a slowly warming pot arguing about whether or not the stove is on. That's what's happening. Denial is one thing. That's I get that. Deliberate obfuscation of facts and withholding information from the people you're supposed to protect, for me, that's unforgivable. This week I saw it again, the footage of Peter Dutton joking about Papua New Guinea going underwater and Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison just chortling along like it's some hilarious joke. That is some proper sociopathic Bond villain stuff. Like, that is, wow. And when you see that the current Australian government, the people in power right now who are on the telly going, we're doing this and doing that, they were presented with a climate action plan 18 months ago 
a way to prepare for this very fire season saying, listen, the severity and overlapping nature of, of what is coming is, is unprecedented and it's never before seen. It's coming. We need help. We need money. We need to prepare. We need to be ready because it's going to be big. That plan was mothballed. So they knew. The current government knew. And they did nothing. And they joked about it. They don't care about actual Australians, the people they claim to represent, the people that they put in their ads going, we represent you, the quiet battler. They don't care. If they cared, they would have implemented something like this. They would have at least told us this is what we're facing. I don't care who you vote for. I really don't care. Liberal, Labor, National, Green, Pirate, Sex. These are all parties in Australia. I don't care who you vote for. I don't. And if the people that you vote for aren't implementing radical shifts away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy, battery and hydrogen storage, none of which we have to wait to be invented, they all exist. If the people you vote for aren't looking at serious climate adaption policy, urgent climate adaption policy, don't vote for them at all. Demand this action because they are employed by us to look after us and they are not. It's as simple as that. If they claim to look after jobs and growth, look how jobs and growth have been affected in the areas that have been destroyed by the fires. All right? Look at the jobs and growth in the years ahead as the world just stops wanting to buy coal. It's not ideology. It's simple economics. I'm probably centrist at best. I might limp to the left, not just because I need a hip replacement, but I might stand a little more on the um, preferred, you know, let's be kind to the people who can't look after themselves versus all oh, people should, you know, look after themselves. Like I'm a little more on the being kind to other people, but I'm mostly centrist. I, I just like to think I'm rational about this stuff. I talked about the first stage of grief being in denial. It's fair enough. The final stage being in acceptance. I've worked very, very hard to become to a place of acceptance, which is a miracle, which I'll talk to you about in a, in a minute. But I'm right through that. I'm right through to the other side. And here I am, my friends. I'm in fury. I'm mad. I'm furious. I will not stand for this blatant ignoring of our country's future, of our children's future. And it's because of that we have to talk about global warming. We have to have these conversations with people who are in denial. We have to. We have to. We have to. We have to challenge those whose perspective is skewered by sourcing their news only from online places which are open to manipulation from special interests. I don't know about you. You've seen, you know, uh, the amount of people who get me online going, but it's the greeds or it's arsonist. Fucking no, it's not. That is some weird kind of, not all warfare is with guns. I'm not talking through my hat here. Not all warfare is with guns, okay? That's some seriously fucked up kind of ulterior motive, you know, special interest manipulation of, of public narrative stuff going on online. I'm not even joking. That is what's happening. It is uncomfortable. And they're people you love and you have to show them that you still love them, but you have to have these conversations. You absolutely have to. It's uncomfortable. It's going to be tough. It's going to be confronting, but we have to. We can't cut people off because it's utterly terrifying to consider. It's terrifying to consider and we have to allow people the space to change their minds. We have to, including our leaders. We have to make them feel safe enough to go, you know what, I was wrong, let's go. Otherwise they won't say shit, which is what's happening right now. With that in mind, let me tell you about my guest today. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Jamie Simmons is the former director of the Strengthening Grantham Project, which was the project to relocate the small town of Grantham following the statewide deadly floods in Queensland in 2011. The Grantham relocation is now regarded by industry and academics globally as the leading example of a managed retreat. What's a managed retreat? A managed retreat is a policy of slowly moving people and property and communities away from parts of the country that will now be unsafe to live in. Be it because these places keep burning down, keep flooding, or are now just plain underwater because the sea level has risen. In his role as director, Jamie successfully implemented a historic, uh, world first, I believe, land swap process. He oversaw the creation, planning and construction of a new estate of 120 separate lots. He delivered the project in only 11 months from the time of the flood to seeing the first families moving into their new homes, a timeline that is yet to be replicated anywhere in the world. Jamie's work includes advising communities on how to adapt to climate change or natural disasters and also provides that community with mental health support and that is made a top priority through the process of a relocation. You'll tell by his accent that Jamie is an American-born Australian citizen. He's now based in Brisbane, Australia. Earlier this year, he toured some towns in the US to view the relocation efforts there and advise on how future efforts could be improved, which is an initiative that will continue as climate adaption continues to grow in urgency. Jamie's written a book about his work, and that book is going to be released in the first half of this year of 2020. On a personal note, if this is your first time listening to the show, you won't know this, but for a long time, and people who've been listening for a long time will know this, for me to even have this conversation is essentially me qualifying for the Boston Marathon as far as my mental health goes. There was a time when I couldn't actually be near the ocean. I couldn't be in a car or look out the window and see the water. It would terrify me. There was a time when looking at the high tide mark was enough to send chills through my body and make me want to shit and vomit all at once. Even the word climate was enough I'd rent cars and I'd see 
the, the dashboard of the car has the word climate control and a button there. My body would convulse in agony. It was that bad. I was unable to go outside on a warm day sometimes. If I went outside and I felt the sun on my skin, I would go back inside. But that is no way to live. I realised that if I kept backing away from the things that frightened me, the things that scared me, the things that made me feel that way, I would end up living my life on the head of a pin. So I, I went off to see an acceptance commitment therapy psychologist. And halfway through this year, I got back on meds. And like a Tour de France rider, doped up on performance-enhancing drugs. Once I got on those meds, I took to those mountain stages and I pushed hard into the things which I was formerly unable to face. I used these meds as a way, like someone who's on the gear, like a weightlifter, like a bodybuilder who's on the gear, I use these meds as like an unfair advantage to push into things that I otherwise couldn't. And it's gotten a whole lot better to the point where I can have this chat. I had a psychiatrist in Los Angeles once who told me, when I'm done with you, you'll be able to go and have a whole talk show about this stuff and then go off and have a nice dinner with friends and then go to sleep peacefully. I absolutely did not believe him. I could not comprehend how I could possibly sleep at night knowing what I know. Well, mate, it took a few years, a few therapists, a lot of meds, a shitload of hard work, but this week I did it, man. It still sucks. It's still horrible but I'm no longer filled with the desire to grab everyone that I love and just escape. And then when I figure out there's nowhere to escape to, start thinking about escaping permanently. The right doctors, the right meds and daily hard work got me here and keep me here. But it is all about being prepared to face what frightens you and it's all about being willing to be with the discomfort. When the email came in pitching Jamie as a guest, actually, I forwarded it to my producer, Rachel. And actually, I'll I'll read you what I wrote back to Rachel. I forwarded the email and this is exactly what I wrote. I'm reading it right off my computer. Hey, Rach, this is terrifying me. So let's book it in. Can we get him lined up for January, please? And then after Jamie and I spoke, I texted Rachel straight away. And I said, Jamie Simmons was an intense, incredible conversation It was like being smashed in the head repeatedly with a mallet filled with feathers. Each blow was just a little bit of soft pain, slowly, slowly building to a cumulative agony. It ended with hope, however, if you can believe it. I still echo with the ache of it, but it's mind-blowing that I was even able to have that conversation today. Six months ago, I wouldn't have even been able to comprehend doing it. Thank you for being a part of my recovery. I'm not going to lie, what you're about to hear is an intense chat. It's an intense conversation. During this conversation, though, I would invite you to try to be present to what confronts you. It is overwhelming. And if it does get overwhelming, perhaps just pause the show and just notice. Notice your breathing. Notice the feeling inside your body. Could you describe it? What color it is? What shape is it? What's the feeling in your body? Focus on it. Breathe into it. Oh, my hands are shaking. That's interesting. Then notice what's around you. Take a few breaths. Walk around. Feel your feet in your shoes. What can you see? What can you smell? What can you feel? And then hit play again. If I can get through this chat, you can get through this chat. (laughs) Thank you for being willing to engage with this conversation with Jamie Simmons. 
How are you, Jamie? You're very good? Very good. Very good. Very good. Your, your hybrid accent, you sound a little like I did after I got off the plane in 2015. I imagine. After yeah. 10 years. Yeah. Of getting bored of saying things twice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> your hybrid accent tells me you're not from Australia, No, Jamie. not from around these parts. No. I, I grew up in um, a little town called Auburn, New York, which is, I sometimes say upstate New York, but upstate sounds classy and trendy and, you know, rich folk. I grew up in central New York, which is a little bit more redneck, but it's a great place to grow up. But winters were cold. Economy's, you know, always a bit rough, although it's battling back these days and, so, um, do you want me to tell you how I yeah, got here? I, I, okay. I, well, f- firstly, like I, I know people from New York and I've, I've yeah. spent a time in New York City in, in my life and I would often, you mentioned winters, and I remember yeah. standing there once, March actually, yes. as horizontal ice yes. was hitting me in the face going, <laughs> yeah. who thought it was a good yeah. fucking idea That's to right. build a city here? Yeah. What this are you doing, people? What are you, just go yeah. south. Yeah. What are you kidding me? It's like yeah. this for months at yeah. a time. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Who would want to do it? Can't grow anything. <laughs> makes no sense. Yeah. But I'm guessing you bumped into someone and, you, and they, they had a prop of a, of, a, of a more temperate climate. Yes. Yeah, I was fortunate. Well, I was um, – my brother – I got an older brother and an older sister and uh, I'm the youngest of three and my brother convinced me to go backpacking around Europe. I thought, well, shit, that'd be fun. I haven't really been overseas, so I worked – this was after I graduated uni. What did you study? I went to a university called Pennsylvania State, and, and I went there. I was a runner, so I was a scholarship runner. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, so I was, a, I was a runner, and so I really didn't give a shit what I was studying. I was running twice a day, eating in between and sleeping in the other times, so didn't really care. So I, I walked in the first day, and they're like, what do you want to study? And I'm like, oh, well, I don't know. Like, well, you look pretty good at maths, you know. Oh, yeah, okay, science. So how about engineering? And they're like, okay, yeah. So I sort of put my name down for environmental engineering because I thought oh, environment's better than like electrical or whatever. Mm-hmm. And for four and a half years, I thought about changing my degree a million times, but I was too damn lazy to walk down to the office and change it. I had to make an appointment. So I just plowed through and ended up with environmental engineering. So right. That's where I went. Many people, a lot of people in Australia don't understand that like the, the, the humongous amount of college debt that yes. people are left with, yes. which was, because we see a lot of people traveling on Australia, very few Americans, they just can't afford to go. Right. Because they're like, yay, I'm 22 with a degree and I owe $150,000 of debt oh. that will not be forgiven even if I declare bankruptcy. Yeah. So one yeah. debt in the States you Follow cannot you get out of. too, yeah, yeah. It is astonishing. It's, I, I don't understand. I, I was for, I was a scholarship athlete, so I, I got paid to go to, wow. to, to school, which I was, I was really lucky, but I don't know how they do it. And yeah. I don't know how they do it these days. It's even yeah. more expensive. It's, it's extraordinary. Just, yeah. So you, you bust out of uni and your big brother and you yeah. just on adventures, European vacation, Throw you're the like, bat. Yeah, I Rusty worked, Griswold, exactly let's go. Right, exactly right. I worked for a couple of months mowing greens on a golf course, make, make a bit of cash. And we went over and um, oh, we were just so like the world- this is a, such a big place and you don't realize it till you get on that plane and you land. We, we went into London, landed in London and I thought, holy shit, you know, what's going on? These people are talking weird. Don't they know they got an accent? You know, what's going on? And all those things running in your mind. And it's a funny story that we sort of went, I can't even remember, like day one, we went, out, we wanted to get out and see the countryside, right? Because we, you know, we don't want to. London folk, you know, we want to see the real England, you know. We get to this little town and we go to the hostel, set up, and we're like, where can we get a feed? You know, what, what, what can we get to eat? And the lady's like, oh, just go down the pub down the street. They, they got this wonderful five pound pie. And we're like, five pound pie? That's, 
that's a big fucking pie, you know? <laughs> this is going to feed us for a couple of days. This is going to be great. So, you know, we rock up and, you know, order, oh, what do you have? A five-pound pie? And we're like, and what are you having? And they look at my brother. He's like, I'm going to help him with the five-pound pie. We don't need two of these things, you know? So that was kind of the stupid shit that you do when you, when you first leave America and the world's a big place and you don't even realize yeah. – they don't call them dollars, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, Does that shock you a little bit? Like having grown up and, and have, knowing what it is to be in America and just how insular so much of the culture and the news is. And it's a common joke how little people from America know about what's not America. Yeah. Did it shock you to go, oh, fuck, what else do I not know? You know, it does. It does. Now, I, I think one thing about Americans, is certainly with me, is there is a sense of adventure there. You know, there is a sense of... You know, I grew up with a sense of, you know, I can do anything. And that, yeah. that's part of that American dream, I suppose, that people talk yeah. about. Whether that's a reality or not, it's a different debate. But, you know, this idea that I can do anything I want. So jumping on the plane wasn't hard. You know, saving up money, buying the ticket, you know, yeah, I can do it. But once you land and you realize, wow, this is a whole other world. They're driving on the wrong side of the road. They're talking weird. They, you know, they got different color money. You know, it does sort of change your perspective. But travel is the greatest you know, the greatest thing. And, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but to me, the, the biggest thing I ever got out of traveling, and it's helped me in my work and everything is people are the same, no matter where you go. You know, they may not speak your language, they may not look like you, but we're all the same at the end of the day, you know, and you can, you know, I've been through India and all these crazy places. My brother lived in Africa. He, he went on to the Peace Corps and lived in Africa for a couple of years in Malawi. And, People are ultimately the same, whether they got money or not, you know, and, and that's a good lesson to learn. Same how? Well, what do they, they want, want the same things. What do they want? They want the same things, you know, a sense of community, a sense of connection with people. You don't often see people living out in the middle of the woods, not talking to people for 30 years, you know. I mean, there are people that do that, but that's not what people generally are built to do. You know, they're built to stay together. They're built to lean on their neighbors and their friends and their family. They're built to grieve when people die. And those lessons, you sometimes learn them the hard way, but when you get out and travel, you actually see, you know, it's, it's easy in a, in a first world nation to think that 100,000 people die in a tsunami somewhere. Oh, well, 100,000 people die in Indonesia. Who cares? You know, they're Indonesians. It's, it's easy to think like that. But when you go to these places and you see these people, they're real people. You know, they got families. They got kids. They, they love people. They, you know, they're in a community. They support what they, you know, their communities and, and keep connected. And it's important. People, we, uh, as you mentioned, not only do we only, we all want community. We all really just, I, I've found, I love your thoughts on this, pretty much like we can go to bed at night with a full belly, mm. sleep soundly knowing that we're safe and then work every day to try and make sure that our kids do a little better than we do, that's pretty much it. That's it. And you'll find that in every community around the world, I think. That's it. It's so simple, you know. We overthink things in, in first world countries like Australia and America, you know. We often build up these expectations that life's so much more than putting your head down and going to sleep feeling safe. Um, we take it for granted. And that's something, I mean, we'll talk about it later. Yeah. That idea of if you're living in fear, if your community's living in fear, it's not a community anymore. You know, it falls apart. And, you know, mental health, all those things creep in. And, you know, we often take that for granted. But yeah, full belly's another one, you know. Uh, yeah, what's that thing? A, a man who has bread has a thousand problems. A man who has no bread has one. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great saying, isn't it? It's true, though. It's so true. <laughs> you can build up everything in your head that, you know. 
It re- crazy, it, it, isn't it? It, it, it really is. Mm. So I'm guessing along the way through your European adventure, you you ran into an Australian who I was did. an exceptional ambassador for our nation. She was. She was. You just met her, Beck. Where did you meet? We met in Stratford-on-Avon in a pub. <laughs> My brother and I rocked up. You figured out the pie situation yeah, by then? that's it. We figured it out. We'd got ourselves some pounds. We knew what we were doing. We could buy a beer. We could buy bread, you know, so we had food. We had beer. We had found hostels. We had a place to sleep. And uh, ran into my wife and her cousin, Susan, um, well, not long into the trip, just a couple of days after we sorted out the pie situation, and uh, which was good. And uh, she just, you know, typical Australian, you know, where are you guys going? Oh, I don't know. We're going we're gonna to backpack around. You want to come with us? Sure. And you just jumped on board and six weeks, you know, eight weeks, whatever it was, traveling around Europe with us. Didn't know us at all, but that was great. And I thought, shit, Australia's pretty cool, you know? Um, we went all over Europe. Well, <laughs> some great stories in there, of course, because travel always does that. Yeah. But um, once I finished the Europe trip, had to go back. I was meant to go back to dental school. So flew back to America and I'm like, oh, shit, you know, dental school or the world. I just got a taste of the world here. I don't, I don't want this to end. So I put dental school off a year and Worked uh, as a very bad waiter. I was a very bad waiter, but I made a bit of money, bought a ticket to come to Australia, and then traveled around Australia with Beck uh, for well, probably about six months and fell in love with the place. You know? Yeah. First time you step, and she lives in Brisbane. We, we live in Brisbane. Oh, yeah. And, um, and so you know, and step off the plane, walk into town, and you're like, wow, this place is cool. You know, <laughs> I don't really want to go. What anyway. year did you get there? That was 98. I left in 98. Did you? Did you? Yeah, man. Brisbane is so different now. Well, it's so different. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like I'm an old person saying, back in my day, you know, Brisbane was that. But it is. It was a cow town. It was a big cow town. We're just getting a glimpse of possibility. Yeah. And now it's the first city in the country with a W hotel. I just can't (laughs) even fucking believe it. You know? It's (laughs) a modern town now. It was, I grew up in a, and you know, I've talked about it a lot on this show. I grew up under Bjelke Peterson and I'm- Yes. We were just up there in Bribey Island. You may know it as yeah, Gold. So uh, we live in Sanford. So we're oh, not right. that. So yeah. you're not yeah. far from God's nah. waiting room there mm-hmm. um, <laughs> in Bribey. And um, <laughs> we're driving around Bribey and Audrey's like, why are all the houses so depressing? Why is the architecture so depressing? And I'm like, you don't understand. 70s and 80s when Bribey Island was developed, yeah. there was – Psychologically, you couldn't be bold. You couldn't yeah. be bigger than yeah. anyone else. You couldn't make a fuss because you'd draw attention to yourself. Yeah. And the special branch was no joke. Yeah. The Queensland Police special branch was yeah. no joke. Yeah. It was fucking weird, man. Under Bjorki Peterson, stuff. it was weird. Crazy stuff. Weird, weird, weird place. <laughs> um, so you've you've got this environmental engineering degree. Yeah. I'm guessing that helped you in the visa situation rather than a couple did. of days of dental school. Yes, uh, yes, yes, it did. Did you, did you fall into work in that so, field? So, well, yeah, yes, eventually. So, you know, the first couple months I'm looking for work and I didn't want to just work in a restaurant or, you know, yeah. well, because I was a shitty waiter. I already established that on my resume that I was terrible at it. I'm not an, a detail guy. So, yeah. you know, if someone drops their fork, I just kind of wipe it on my pants and hand it over. So, uh-huh. Five-second rule, mate. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm big on that. So, yeah, I, it didn't take me that long. And I started work in Brisbane City Council. That was the first real job I had in government. Yeah. And, well, it's one uh, of the biggest councils in the world. It is. It was massive. massive. It's, essentially, it's essentially a state government. It is. It is. It is. It's, yeah. it, it pretty much runs the state of Queensland. And, and, you know, they had a lot of services where I would work for other councils over the years, but Brisbane City would help 
all yeah. sorts of councils do different things because they just had specialists in every area. Really quite a unique organization. So I was lucky to, yeah. to land in there. And What kind of projects were you working on? So I was mostly in development assessment. So I would assess developments, okay? And I would look at it from an environmental point of view. So I would look at if someone wanted to upgrade the oil refinery or if someone wanted to do this, I would assess whether you know, people nearby would get sick or if it was too loud or if the air quality wasn't good. So that was kind of my background. And I got to move up pretty quick and do some really interesting things because it's a fairly unique field in the sense that there weren't a lot of people that could do that sort of stuff in council. So I was like, okay, not that I always knew what I was doing, but I made it up as we went and there we go. And so I kind of moved up the ranks and would get put on some really big projects. And I just sort of got a knack for... Well, my wife says I don't have a great attention span. You know, I, I, I keep things short and sharp and I don't multitask that well. So something gets put in front of me. I just devour it as fast as I can and then move to the next one. You know, if, if there's a file in my hand, I don't care about the 50 next to me. I'm going to deal with that file and then I'm going to grab the next one off the top of the pile. So it kind of worked in my favor in development assessment because you want to be kind of quick, but you want to be thorough. Um, and I just made a name for myself of getting things done quick that were fairly complicated, you know, and sort of worked through the ranks of council. And then I started doing a bit of consulting, moved out of Brisbane City Council and just worked for a range of different councils on different sorts of projects. So where were you in 2011? Now, let's, let's paint the picture a bit. I was, I was yep. overseas and yep. my family got affected. All of my yep. mom's stuff got you know, she lived on the 11th floor of an apartment in St. Lucia, which is oh, on a bend yeah. in Brisbane. And um, she was too old to get a lift stop working because yeah. the, the bottom two floors of her apartment building were underwater. Yeah. The, there's colossal floods. I can't, extra, can't Extraordinary, remember wasn't it? how much rain came, but mm. it was a shitload. You know, it was that feeling of being so far away from home, knowing all the things from your childhood are now gone. Yeah. It was very, very weird. Even though I was in Los Angeles at the time, it was very, very weird not being able to be there. My brothers were, before the waters got too high, my brothers were essentially holding groceries above their heads um, and then walking up the stairs to deliver groceries to mum. Yeah. Because they're like, well, where's she going to go? She's safe. You know, she's lived through war. She, yeah. she was like, fuck, I'm not moving. I'm not going to walk down 10 sets, <laughs> 10 sets of stairs to get in a boat. What do you think this is? The toilet still flushes. I'm fine. Um, Resilience, eh? You yeah, that, yeah. That's, that she's just basically stayed yeah. up. They had that, you know, I think the SES eventually showed up and, and carried her yeah. and um, her friend down the stairs. But yeah. there was a hum- an enormous amount of water. And I remember hearing about what happened in Grantham with uh, just terror because I rem- I know that part of the world. I, mm. I used to be a roadie and we traveled around a lot. And so we saw parts of regional and rural Australia. Sure. And, and I'd done a lot of work with Channel V as well, where we also saw a lot of regional and rural Australia. So I knew the kind of area that it was. For people who aren't familiar, and this is nearly 10 years ago now, what did happen in Grantham? Essentially, it was, well, it was devastating. You know, you, you can see it, you can Google it on YouTube. But what essentially happened in a nutshell, and there's been royal commissions into this and people have looked into what happened, but Basically, you had a flooded environment long before that day. So everything was saturated in the whole of the Lockyer Valley, which is essentially the area between Ipswich and Toowoomba. It was completely full of water before this flood occurred. So the ground no longer able to no absorb longer to, any water that's at right. all. The creeks were full. Everything was just So any chunk. rain that hits the ground is running off. That's it's right. Nowhere, nowhere for it to go. Got it. And what essentially happened was 
a large storm cell or series of sort of storm cells came over Wyvernhoe and dumped a bunch there and sort of came in from the coast. Wyvernhoe is the massive dam. Yes, that's sorry. the water catchment. That's where Brisbane gets its water supply from. It's, it's humongous. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And that probably something important for your listeners to understand is the flooding that affected Brisbane and the, you know, the notion of the dam releases and how that sort of came in, that was a different system than Grantham. So Grantham is upstream of Brisbane River. So what, there's, there's re- basically there's ridge lines between the Brisbane River and the Lockyer Valley. Well, so. the, 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 the Lockyer Creek, which is what flooded Grantham, drains just below the dam wall at Wyvernhoe. Oh, okay. So Wyvernhoe, the flood release from Wyvernhoe never affected Grantham. Got it. Where there were upstream. Got it. What it was was the event, the, the storm event, dropped all sorts of rain on Toowoomba and on the range you know, Toowoomba sits up higher, the Lockyer Valley sits lower, the storm sat on the range. So Toowoomba got hit and there were a few lives lost up in Toowoomba, which was extraordinary. And all the rain hit on the escarpment. Now on that escarpment, there's, you know, four or five big creeks that all flow into essentially the Lockyer Creek. Yeah, Toowoomba is essentially, it's almost like a a, a tableland that juts up out of the the valley floor. And when you drive up Toowoomba, Toowoomba, you drive up a switchback trail to to get there. Uh, It's quite a ways up. It's a couple of hundred meters or more above Mm. sea level. And it's quite topographically very diverse. So that there was flooding so intense that people died in that environment and in that topographical situation it's not a giant floodplain it is not that it is, is not that is something else yes that's a humongous amount of water right right it must to, have been thousands of millimeters it was incredible and people i don't think appreciate exactly what happened in toowoomba unless you go mm. and see it and try to get your head around yeah, it yeah. now the rain that hit toowoomba actually went west you know okay. it did not come down the range so some people think oh that came down the range and into grant that's not true it was just the same storm that affected it uh-huh. so all those creeks coming down the hill merged up and formed in what essentially was the Lockyer Creek and it broke its banks in a number of places so there was there was loss of life upstream of Grantham uh, Murphy's Creek Spring Bluff Postman's Ridge but Grantham sort of captivated the world because it was the first town to really be hit. You know, those yeah. other areas are a bit more rural, you know, separated, you know, rural landscape type things, whereas Grantham was actually a town. And that water just came down the Lockyer Creek, broke its banks, and people described it as an inland tsunami, I think is what, what people have described it as. And and it just blew the town apart. So we're like a couple of meters high of so, water. So people say different things, you know, five feet, two meters, you know, some people say three meters. Um, I guess it's hard to really pin down exactly what it is because everyone's got a different perspective and everyone's three feet is different. But, but it was enough, yeah, Hawaiians, it was Australians, we measure water differently. Yeah, right. uh, but essentially it was enough water to destroy that's right. construction, to Absolutely. destroy houses, destroy yep. buildings. Infrastructure, destroy railway line, destroy pretty much everything in its path. Yeah, and really. you've seen a railway line. It's designed to carry a, a coal train that's thousands of tons. Absolutely. And this is enough water to destroy that. Absolutely. That's a lot of water. Yep. You think, think about that, I guess, you know, think about the size of a bulldozer you would need to destroy a, a railway line right. or something like that. Like the water was had more power than that. Absolutely. I mean, it was pushing over prime movers, filled water tanks, uh, Hundreds of cars and trucks. I mean, I remember even how it had to be months after the flood. I remember a a BMW stuck up in a tree five meters off the ground. You know, just just crazy, you know. 
Crazy stuff. So on the day, you were following this from Brisbane? Yeah, so I was in Brisbane. So I guess first I should probably introduce Steve Jones, who was the mayor uh, of the Lockyer Valley at the time. I had known Steve from a couple of projects before, and anybody who knows him or has heard about him, he's just a big, loud, some would call obnoxious, but a guy, a fighter, a real yeah. fighter. Indicative of the culture of that area. Absolutely. Is how I'll put it. Absolutely. That's very much the type of exactly. human being that is required exactly. to get by in that part of the world. That's a perfect way yeah. to describe him, Asher. You know, he was just bred from that Lovely, ground. Yes. kind, empathic. Yeah. But with a force. Absolutely. <laughs> hard, hard. With a, with a force. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, I hope, Australians know someone like that oh, or exposed do. to that. We've all just speak Christmas uh, or someone like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Being an American, when I first met him, I'm like, what is he saying? I can't understand a word yeah, he's saying. Uh, There's so yeah. much slang thrown in there and a wallaby jumping around and, you know, this and that. Yeah, yeah. But quickly had to learn his language. But we, we knew each other a little bit before, the, well, for a few years before the flood. Mm. And for some reason, we couldn't have been any different. I mean, I'm a skinny yank. He's a chubby Australian, you know, and, but we just clicked, you know, yeah. from the day we met. I have no idea why. I think probably some of it was, he was a strong leader and he liked, you know, like I said before, I, I don't necessarily multitask. you know, I, I take something, I run with it as fast as I can until it's done. And then I stop and grab the next thing. That was kind of how, and I think he just appreciated that style. So I was in, I was in Brisbane at the time. I was actually, the day Brisbane flooded, I was mowing my lawn. Mm. You know, it was a very unusual uh, sort of feeling. And again, you sort of described it, you know, you're, you're in LA, you know, almost grieving for what's happening. Well, I was kind of like that in Sanford, you know, which mm. is just 20 minutes outside of Brisbane. And you just feel for what's going on, but you can't be, it, it probably, you know, I, I, I moved over here permanently in two, 2001, beginning mm-hmm. of 2001. And when the Twin Towers came down, yeah. you know, I was here. Oh, right, yeah. And it hurt. Yeah. You know, it hurt me a lot because I wasn't there. And, you know, you can probably relate to, to a similar feeling that you want to be there, you want to see your community, you want to, you know. Yeah. And I wasn't from New York City, um, but my sister and, and her husband were there. And, you know, you wonder, shit, you know, what can I do to help? And there's yeah. nothing. But you sort of feel like that. And that's how I felt in the floods in Brisbane. And I remember just a couple days after I was working as a consultant in the city and Steve gave me a ring. Uh, and he, at that time he'd been in the, all over the world in the media and, you know, standing up for his community and, you know, what are we, you know, and doing that whole thing. And he gave me a ring. He said, you know, I could use a bit of help. Um, so I talked to the, the guy I was doing a contract with at the time. I said, do you mind if I go out for a couple of weeks and give him a hand? He said, no, you know, go. So I got in a car and drove and got out there. And day one, got out there in the morning and he took me out to Grantham. And, uh, you know, this would have been just a couple days after after the flood, maybe five or six days. I, I can't even really remember. But he took me around and he showed me what happened. And it was just, I'm not the kind of guy that cries at a movie or, you know, E.T. I can get through E.T. without a tear, you know. But you see that sort of thing and you see those people and it's hard. And I think you know, thinking about what I did out there and, and what the people around me did, it was, it was probably born on that day where you're like, I, if there's something I can do to help these people, I'm going to move heaven and earth to do it. And, you know, Steve did that. So he took me around and had a look and he said, you know, we got to clean this shit up. Can you help me with that? But also I'm, I'm thinking about trying to 
move this town. So start thinking about it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What led him to that? What because a lot of people the first thing they say at the press conference is we will rebuild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what? exactly right. You know, he sort of said, and, and when I'm driving around and he's talking to me about, it, he's like, "Mate, why would you rebuild? I mean, how could people rebuild? You know, how, how can you patch a place up, lift it back up, put a lick of paint on it, sweep out the mud, and put your head down at night? I mean, how can you do that? How can we allow people to only have that option?" And I think where he came from is he's like, if that's what you do, if, if that's their option, they will piss off and leave because why would they stay there? Because there's no future there. How do you put your kid to bed at night? How do you go to sleep when it rains? All these little things that, like we said earlier, you know, Asher, you take these things for granted. People in a third world country understand that because, yeah, they're always worried about life and death situations. Was he aware else, that this you know? sort of thing might happen again? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Grantham had always flooded. Okay. Mm. Grantham was a, a perpetual flood town, but these were bathtub type floods. You know, you knew it was coming. You lift your stuff up, you move it to the second floor, you pick your stuff off the ground. The water comes up to a certain level and everybody in Grantham for generations knew where that level was. It had never gone higher than here. Mm. So don't worry, folks. It'll never get higher than that. Well, the flooding that hit Grantham on that day blew the doors off of that. It was a flash flood. It was a completely different scenario. And it might never happen again in our lifetime, but it could happen next year. You know, I mean, we look at these droughts and these terrible fires and all that, but next year we could all be underwater, you mm-hmm. know? And Steve was not a, the kind of guy that would sit down and just say, all right, well, we're gonna, you know what, everybody, let's just keep quiet. Let's bury our heads down deep. Let's let these people kind of rebuild a bit. Elections coming up in another year or two, I'll get reelected and then I'm going to retire and, you know, okay. Mm. And this will blow over, you know. He wasn't that kind of guy. And most people aren't, but the fortitude and the resilience that it takes to actually commit to something and make promises to people and really make promises to, you know, a lot of people make promises to people, but to look people in the eye and say, I'm going to give you an option. You can rebuild there. You can piss off and leave. You can take your insurance payment and move away. But I don't want either of those things. I want to give you guys another option. I want to put you guys up on the hill. Yeah, okay, you know, sure, whatever, whatever. No, no, really, really, that's what I'm going to do. Now, I'm guessing, I just want to kind of just kind of solidify this. So behind Steve's decisions was, 
I'm concerned that these people will never feel safe yep. in this space again. Yep. So therefore they might just leave. Yes. And if they leave this entire community, which makes this place special, these people, this history, this culture, which not only makes this place, but my entire area special will vanish and that will affect everything. You nailed it. Right. Absolutely nailed it. I mean, I should have written that down. No, it's okay. It's recorded. <laughs> I'm glad we recorded it's it. It's recorded. Uh, no, I just want to, I kind of want to get where he was coming from. Absolutely. Because you're right. I mean, I would not want to be in the insurance industry in Australia oh, right now. Yeah. I'm going to guess like just as an aside, you know, I think about what political pressure will make the world change. Yeah. The insurance companies calling out the prime minister going, do you want a country that doesn't have insurance companies? Because that's what's going to fucking happen if you don't do something because- we won't be able to afford to keep doing business. That's right. That's the end of the story. That's right. Oh, she's going to be shit like that. That's right. You know, the fact that everything's on fire doesn't make someone in a power position of power jump. No. But a massive, massive multi-billion dollar worldwide insurance company calling up the prime minister going, if you want a country with no insurance companies, you're going the right way about it. Exactly. Because we won't be able to afford to do business there anymore. Exactly. And no, no, no economy can run without insurance. That's right. And that's horrid. That's right. Horrid. But that's, anyway. That's how it works. That's how it works. And anyway. Back, it, it's a reality. Mm. Back to Grantham. Yes. So the Steve has the fortitude to go, what makes my surrounding communities great is having your community inside that community. I don't want to lose this community. This community, the, the neighbors make each other's lives better. Yes. They nourish each other's lives. Their lives are what they are because of the people around them. If I let them disperse and there's a diaspora, their lives will suffer no matter where they go. They'll Absolutely. always deal with trauma of not only, you know, they lost everything, but they lost the people. They lost the community. And so what was he in the passenger seat? Were you in the passenger seat when- I was in the passenger seat. I was standing right there with my little notebook taking notes. And what did he say to you? Well, he sort of looks at me and he says, um, you know, can we fucking do this? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, well, I think we can. He's like, you bet your ass we can, you know, <laughs> get to work. You know, it was that kind of thing. And and how you described that just there, I mean, it's great talking to you because um, you understand it. You get it. I don't have to explain it. You know, community, let's talk about community for a second, you know, before we dive into the detail. You know, what is community? What does it mean to different people? And I sort of think, you can, so you've got a young kid, you know, like, Wolfie. Yeah, a teenager as well. Yeah, yeah, and a teenager, you know, beautiful kids. And, you know, there's probably times where you finally get that little boy to sleep and you're like, oh, this is oh, peaceful and quiet. The neighbor turns on Iron Maiden, you know, starts blasting it, singing at the top of their lungs, playing on, you know, whatever it is. And you think, oh, fucking neighbors. And then you walk down the street and, you know, someone's blocking your driveway or whatever. You go into the shop and someone cuts you. But, if your community in that group and your neighbor, his house is on fire, Osher, you're going to open that door and you're going to say, mate, you're coming with me. And you're going to throw him on your shoulder and you're going to drag him out. And all those Iron Maiden albums that he's playing at two in the morning aren't going to matter. No. You know, because he's your, he's your neighbor. He's your community member. He is, you need him. Yeah. And he needs you. And, you know, you lose track of that, particularly this day and age, because you got your phones and you got the internet and you can be in a community in Serbia. And they're, they're my, you know, but you need your neighbor, you know, you need your friend. And even though they pissed you off, you need them. And Grantham was not a perfect town before the flood. You know, they had all the same sorts of things that every community has. You know, they had the, the assholes and, you know, they had the complainers and the whingers and they had the people that did this and the loud dogs. They had all that mental health issues. 
drugs, alcohol. I'm sure they had all that. This doesn't make them special. Exactly Every right. Every community's got Every all community's of those things. got it, and you yeah. accept that. And you know, you don't put them up on a pedestal. They're no different than than you and I. But that is worth keeping. It's worth keeping because you use the word diaspora. Fantastic word because that's what these things happen. And you show me a time in history where a diaspora has been a particularly good thing. <laughs> you know, people have dealt. You know, the Jewish. You know, they they know it more than any culture in the world, but it's hard because you have to not only leave what you know and what you understand and what your generations of your family have valued, you have to go into somebody else's turf and be accepted. That's hard. And it happens every day. Mm-hmm. You know, a disaster hits somewhere, a hurricane hits America, people move out and they find a new job and they move on. But that community that they left lost the best teacher in the high school, or they lost the doctor who actually gives a shit, or they lost the captain of the soccer team, you know, Mm. or, you know, they lost the girl who's just the straight A student, you know, they lose that. And then the receiving community doesn't necessarily appreciate that, hey, you just gained the greatest teacher in the history of Osherville, you know, or they don't necessarily appreciate it. And, And that person doesn't feel valued, you know, I was valued, I was somebody, in yeah. Grantham, but now I'm just another guy. Yeah. That's hard. You know, and that's what community really is. And getting back to the Grantham story, when you chew all that up and you, you know, you throw that in your your salad, you know, you, you don't want to walk away from that, you know, and warts and all, you want that community to stay. And ultimately, you've got to show them that there's a way. And show them that this isn't going to take 10 years, you know, and give them a vision that they can stick around for. So that that vision involved Steve saying, I want to put him on that hill. Yeah. Pointing at a hill above a flood marker, yes. probably way above a flood marker so yes. everyone can rest yes. their heads yeah, at night. No. Yeah. That land's obviously owned by somebody. Yes. I'm guessing. Okay. So what happens next? Do you call yeah. the lawyers? What happens? <laughs> well, here's the thing, Asher. I mean, you're asking the same questions that I was asking. Yeah. So, Okay. Let's move this town. Okay. How many people are we talk? We're talking, well, Grantham, you know, and I don't know exactly, but Grantham probably had about 400, 500 people at the time of the flood. We built 121 lots and right. filled them all. Right. So that like gives you, you did all those years in uh, project development <laughs> and, and land development <laughs> approvals at the Brisbane yeah. City Council, man. Well, it made a difference. Ticking a box on North Lakes exactly or whatever right. it was. <laughs> you exactly know? right. Look, Mango, have exactly. you been to Mango Hill lately? That's right. Holy Mate. shit. It's crazy, isn't it? My like, in-laws live there. Like, yeah. I was there two weeks ago going, there's a BCF bigger than an airport yeah. here. Yeah. This used to literally be a hill full of yeah. mangoes. Yeah. <laughs> no mangoes there anymore. No mangoes like there anymore. angry dudes on yeah. BMXs with yeah. neck tats. It's crazy. around like, my It's God. crazy. They got a Costco there, which, you know, is an American. I'm like, this is great. But I'm thinking, this used to be bloody... It, you know, feels it's country. But so anyway, yeah. you, you you know, people yeah. serendipity is a wonderful thing. Mm. No matter you know, you can look at it in different ways. But you know, your decades of experience of doing yes. exactly this. Yes. Go lucky. Well, okay, I've you know, I, got, I know I, got what, I know what needs to happen. Yeah. yeah. Like Osher, I'll tell you, and my wife will tell you. There's a lot of things that I'm shit at, but this project and that leader, you know, Steve, who I got to work, I had the privilege to work with. We were built for this. You know, we were built for this. Like, there's not a lot of times in your life where you can say, hey, you know, 
this is crazy, but I think I got the goods here, you know? Mm. And, you know, of course, you're not going to say, uh, I don't have the goods because we got to get this shit done, come hell or high water. But yeah. I thought, geez, you know, we got a chance here. And Are people living in tents? Is, is that what's happening? So there's evacuation centers right. early on. And, and you probably see, you'll hear about it now with the bushfire, you know. People will go to a, an evac center and they'll be camped up there for a, a few days, could be a few weeks, mm. depending. And then they might be shifted around. There might be some housing. Um, a lot of people kind of go to family or friends in the interim. Some people go into sort of state housing or something, yeah. you know, temporary housing, um, dongas and things like that. Yeah. And we had that in Grantham. And this is really important too. You know, I guess moving on with the Grantham story. We had an early idea of what we wanted to do, but the key was we had to move fast because this talk about, you know, Grantham becoming a ghost town and people moving, it doesn't take long for people's brains to move on. It doesn't take long for people to say, well, I'm not going back to Grantham and, you know, I'm living with my mother-in-law or whatever and it's okay and I'm in Brisbane and, uh, you know, maybe Brisbane isn't so bad. It doesn't take long for people to do that. And we realized that straight up. So one of the things that, we did early on and Steve did this in a disaster. You, you got the response, you know, rescuing people. And then you got kind of the cleanup period. And then once the cleanup's done, cleanup's kind of not a bad time, to be honest, because you got tons of help. You got tons of people. You got your neighbor bringing over cookies and you got someone looking after the kids so you can, you know, mop things down. And it, it's almost an adrenaline. And that's when I came into Grantham, when there was a bit of adrenaline, you know, that people are kind of feeling okay, you know, and they're getting fed and we're having meetings every couple of day, every, every evening, basically, and there's food and I'm getting fed, you know, it's great. And people haven't yet absorbed, this is all going to go away and mm. I'm going to be left sitting on my couch one day wondering what am I going to do? Mm. That period goes for a little while, but once the help leaves, once the people leave, once the neighbor stops cooking you a lasagna and, and you've got to kind of fend for yourself, that's awful. You know, and that's a real downer and, and you'll see it with the bushfires, you know, in a couple of months, people will hit the ground hard. We knew that was going to happen and we knew we had to have some real action by that time because we needed to keep people getting out of bed in the morning. So very early on, Steve sort of went in and said, hey guys, you know, we're going to do this and not only are we going to move this town to the hill, we're going to do it in 12 months. You know, we're going to do it by Christmas. So the flood was 10th of January. We're going to have people in homes by Christmas. You know, of course, I'm sitting there shitting myself because I'm like, all right, I got to do this by Christmas. How are we going to do it? But that's leadership. And we talk about, everyone talks about leadership. You got different views of it. And, but shit, you know, when you can stand in front of a group of hundreds of grieving people and say, we're going to be up there. And they look in your eyes and they look in my eyes and they say, you know what, I got to give these guys a chance because I think they might be onto something. That's leadership, you know. So when was the first time you laid eyes on the bit of land that you're going to build New Grantham on? Yeah, so that was pretty soon after. The, the, the hill behind Grantham is right there. So everyone could see it. It wasn't hard to visualize something up there. So we had that going for us. We had a couple things going for us. The land was fortunately for sale at the time. So we had other you know, planets aligning and it was big. It was a big plot of land. We could do a lot of different stuff and it just kind of, it could work. So we knew that pretty quickly within the first couple of weeks. And I think council ended up buying the land, would have been in March, I think, 
bought it pretty quick. And we started having workshops quick. So I would sit in some meetings with, with, we had a fantastic architect and his team, Cam, and some other people helping us out. We had a good team around me, a small team though. And that's another important point, a very small team. And we sat down, we thought, okay, how's this going to look? What are we going to do? And we put some, you know, had the maps out, started, you know, Cam had his crayons and stuff and drew it up a bit. And we said, okay, well, let's start talking to the community about it. And we were kind of teasing it, you know, at the time, we were having regular meetings in Grantham every night for a while. And then it would be sort of weekly or twice a week. And we would sort of tease this stuff. And you couldn't talk a lot about the relocation because there are lots of other things to talk about. Donations were coming in. I mean, donate. We could talk about that for hours. Sorting out donations and who was getting what. It was, it was actually very difficult. But you'd tease it and you'd say, okay, we got some planning going on. You know, this is what we're thinking about, you know, throwing some ideas out and I would just sort of sit there and kind of gauge, okay, are people paying attention or are people kind of looking around, you know, are we going to get this up? Because this was always going to be a voluntary thing. We were never going to make anybody move. But shit, you don't want to go through all this effort and have 15 people rock up. So you kind of want to get that buzz going. You kind of want to, you know, you know know better than I. You know, how do you sort of motivate a Mm -hmm. crowd, you know, and how do you get them on their feet and interested? You got to just throw little teasers, little teasers. And then- we started having proper workshops where we visioning workshops where we'd show them maps and we'd say things like, What do you like about Grantham? You know, what do you want to retain about Grantham? What are those things that your parents why did they come here in the first place? You know, and and trying to evoke an emotional connection, you know, and um, we had some great help in that. Jude Monroe, who was a former CEO of Brisbane City Council, helped us out with that. And, you know, just Connecting people, making people realize, you know, why do you want to stay here? How can we make you stay here? Mm. And getting people to talk about it and real simple stuff, but man, complex. And it was really hard because people were grieving, people were crying, you know, people, like I said, I mean, I, I can make it through ET without crying, but when people are crying on my shoulder and telling me stories and they're saying, you know, I'm afraid every time it rains, like, I'm not trained for that, man. I got an environmental, en- I got an engineering degree and, you know, two years of dental school here, you know, how do I deal with this? And it, it was very, very difficult for me, but I, I'm a fairly empathetic person and I think I connected with people pretty well, but it's hard. So you'd go through these workshops and you'd tease out, okay, what's important? And we try to put all that into this plan because ultimately if this plan what didn't encapsulate that stuff, we were going to fail. You yeah, know? there's real. I think it's you can definitely see it in the indigenous community in Australia yeah. of a, a certain committee deciding that's where you're going to live yes. and this is what the houses look like. Yes, and the community going, that's not how we live. Exactly, we don't care. That's not how we live. That's the wrong structure for us. That's the wrong place for us. Mm-hmm. We're going to sleep out there on the ground, and then we built these for you. How <laughs> dare you? It's like. You didn't even ask it. That's right. You know, and there's plenty of examples of that. So it it seems like it's a very, very important step in, you know, what do you need as a community? What do you need as human beings to continue your culture in Grantham? And I guess enough of that 
got people enrolled in the idea of actually this might yes. be, I've got this insurance check I'm rather than going and buying a house in Ipswich or, you know, maybe over in Brisbane or screw it, let's go to the Gold Coast. Oh, let's stay. Let's stay. Let's stay. We got this, a chance. This, you know, this, is, this could be good. Mm. And all these things led you to, you know, that, that was a really important factor. Obviously, breaking ground would have been a really big day. Pushing dirt around is yeah. very important. Very important. Symbolic. Mm. You, you mentioned earlier the community has, you know, whatever community has, it has people who are maybe, you know, brilliant, people who yep. are maybe not so brilliant, but that's the you know, yin and yang of, the, of, life, yep. of life. There would be people who maybe weren't doing so well socioeconomically and people who had worked for generations, maybe, you know, they had some people in the cattle industry and in their yes. family and like they've got this home yes. that is worth possibly five, ten times more than this other person's home. How do you then balance that when yeah. you're building a new home to yeah. go, all right, mate, everyone's getting a new house, but because you yeah. were the guy who did two shifts a week at the Macca's drive-thru yeah. <laughs> and was on Centrelink, your house doesn't not going to look as look nice like as this. that person yeah. over there. How do you how do manage you that? Equity. How, Equity. Yeah, how do you make that? Yeah, great question. We didn't is the short answer. We didn't make those decisions. What we did, we kept it as simple as we could. We did a land swap. So we said, we don't care if you got the Taj Mahal or if you got a vacant block of dirt. Our goal is to keep people safe. That's our mission. We're not looking at anything else. So we said, you give us your block of land, we'll give you a, a shiny new block of dirt up on the hill. What you build up there is up to you and how you build it is up to you. But we're not going to give you any more or any less than the next guy, than, than your neighbor. We're going to give you the same thing. The reason we could do that is because if people were insured, they would get a payout. Now, there's some nuance in there because Steve had to call a few insurance companies and make it clear what our objective was here. By and large, the insurance companies did it, did a really good job. I'll talk about media in a second because media was very important in that. But they could get an insurance payout. And if you remember, there was also the Premier's Disaster Relief Fund as well. And so people who weren't insured could get quite a substantial amount of money. There was a lot of donations flown in to grant them cash and other things in kind. Kitchens, people were getting kitchens thrown mm. at them. So we harnessed all that and we said, we don't have to make decisions about the Macca's drive through kid versus the multimillionaire. We didn't have to do that. And we were fortunate to do that. It was, it, but how we did it, we just, we kept it simple. We kept right. it basic, you know. So everyone got the same size block of land. That they had. Up on the hill. That That's they right. had. So that if I had. had 50 square meters and you had 500, I would get 50 exactly. and you would get 500. Exactly. Got it. And this made it for a very complicated project. We didn't think about that. See, you're, you're raising these questions and it's so great that you are because I didn't think of that question that you asked until we were a few weeks into this thing. Right. And you're like, someone, I, I don't know who it was, said, hey, you know, what are we going to do? I'm like, oh, fuck, I don't know. And But for us, the simplest answer was the best. If we couldn't write it on a couple of pages, double spaced, it was too complicated. Right. So all we said was, yeah, if you got a 2,000 square meter block, Boom, you get a 2,000 square meter block up here. And when it came to placing people as part of keeping a community together, yes. I'm guessing even though Grantham is a small town, there's a wrong side of the tracks. And if you've worked very hard and you've found yourself in the nicer part of town, yep. 
I'm guessing you're going to hope that your neighbors will be the same neighbors. That's right. That's right. This was a challenge, you know, of course. We had to find a way to equitably distribute those lots in a fair, transparent manner without pissing everybody off. And that's hard. You walk a fine line. What we ended up doing was a ballot process where people preferenced where they wanted to be and they numbered. If you had a 4,000 square meter block, you were eligible for a 4,000 square meter block in the new estate. And you had to number, if there were 64,000 square meter blocks, you had to number one to 60, your favorite to your least favorite. It ended up being an Excel spreadsheet. We didn't do it. We got a third party to do it because we didn't want to be in, in yeah. amongst that. People had a number. We gave them numbers mm-hmm. and they just spit it into an Excel spreadsheet and it spit out where they went. So they had a preference ballot so mm-hmm. they could kind of prioritize where they wanted to be. Yeah. And that's how we did it. Now, what we sort of said is every lot in that new estate's a great lot. You know, yeah. one, it doesn't flood. And two, it's beautiful valleys. You know, we, we tried to give them more. Mm. So they didn't have sewer in the old Grantham. We gave them sewer in the new Grantham. We had wide streets, um, curb and channel. We had a big park, you know, so we, we, over, we overcooked it yeah. so that they said, hey, you know, no matter where I end up, it's going to be good. I, I'm, I'm asking these questions because the model that you guys ultimately did, it, it's the land swap was a world first. Mm. As far as uh, it, right, uh, well, we called it a world first, and no one challenged us really. Okay. So, <laughs> so we'll call yeah. it a world first. Yeah, uh, the land swap was a world first, and mm. it is now being looked at as a blueprint, a formula for what we will have to do over the next hundred years for the managed yes. retreat strategy, which is horrible. We have to. I mean, we should address. It's fucking horrid mm. that this has to be what it is. That. The amount of carbon in the atmosphere, no matter what, if we stopped emitting carbon today, it wouldn't matter uh, that there is enough carbon in the atmosphere that we will keep warming for decades and ice will melt and seas will rise. That's a given and that is harrowing. And I'm asking these questions because what you've done in Grantham, no one else has done before because people know, well, we're going to have to move away from the coastline. Mm. How are we going to do it? Mm. Who else has done it? That worked out okay. Can you come talk to us, please? Mm. So you've been traveling, talking to people around the world about this. And so I'm asking these questions because, you know, I look at somewhere like (laughs) uh, many many people know of the city. I don't know how many people have been there, but there's a city in America called Miami, which they have (laughs) built probably around 41 centimeters above the high tide mark. And it floods, storm drains flow backwards now so often. And we're talking squillion dollar beachfront mm. estates and land that is now worth jajillions of dollars. And yet two blocks back from that is absolute shitsville. Like you cannot get more wrong side of the tracks in Miami. If you mm. literally go 300 meters inland from the sand, you don't want to be walking around there at night. It is dodge. Dodgy, 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 dodgy. How do you then say to the people, all right, we're going to move all of you. A, where are you going to go? Because there's no land on a hill that you can see. It's not like uh, Florida's mountainous these days. No, (laughs) but there's no land on a hill that you can see. Right. All right. There's no, you know, so how do you then, you know, for a city that can't afford to build a seawall, how do you then even begin to comprehend a managed retreat? And how do you, you know, how do you talk to these communities about this and, Oh, so many questions. Oh, you know, <laughs> what you're doing right now, Asher, is you're eating the elephant, you yeah. know? Um, and, and I'm a big fan of elephant. But let's bring it back a step. 
when we did Grantham, yeah. when I stood next to Steve and we said, this is what we're going to do, we weren't taking on those issues you mentioned. You no. know, we, we weren't trying to address anything bigger than this community is grieving and we could lose them. That was where we were at. That's all we were doing. We didn't think about climate change or adaptation or anything like that. Man, it, managed to treat, I'd never even heard of that word until this year, <laughs> or two words, I suppose. And when we finished Grantham, so Steve died in 2016. And uh, that was tough for me, of course. But when he died, I didn't think about Grantham for years. You know, I, it, it was something I did. It was something I left on my LinkedIn profile, but I moved on and did other things and I never really talked about it. And how this all came about uh, for me was, yes, a professor in America came over to Australia and just called me out of the blue. And he's like, hey, I'm in Australia. I, have you heard of manager treat? And I'm like, no, no. He's like, well, I study that. And I've heard about Grantham, but there's, there's not much about Grantham. And, and I'm just wondering, someone said you might know something about Grantham. I'm like, yeah, well, I, I guess I do know a little bit about Grantham. And I said, you know, where are you? He said, well, I'm, I can make myself available. I said, come on up to Brisbane. I'll take you out there. And I took him out there. And this was earlier this year. And I hadn't been to Grantham for years, probably even before Steve died. I hadn't been out there for probably a year or so. And, you know, and I pull up and I look at it and I'm like, wow, geez, Grantham looks pretty good. Yeah, yeah it's pretty good. And, and as I'm talking to him about what we did, he's like, this is, this is amazing. You know, you, how fast, you, 11 months you had people in, wow, that's, what, really? You know, and how much did you spend? I was like, yeah, 18 million, 18 million, you know, they did a, thing in America, which was probably one of the most successful ones that I ended up touring. And it was in the 90s. It took them three years to get a home up and they spent 40 million US in the mid 90s and it, not taking anything away from what they did. They, it looks like they did a fantastic job. But, you know, from his point of view, he's like, wow, this is something different. And, you know, I haven't seen anything like this. And it started me thinking and he's talking about managed retreat. And he's talking about climate adaptation, and all this sort of things. And I'm like, Maybe there is something here. Maybe maybe we did do something unique. And I always knew we, you know, it was, it was special. But in the current world, it's probably more relevant than it ever was, you know. So he asked me, you know, we went to the States. We toured around. And he said, you got to write something down about this. And write, write a research paper. I'm like, all right, I can do that. I write a couple pages. So, you know, I come back and I start writing down some stuff. You know, he's, he's encouraging me. He's like, you write something down, you know, Google. Then I'm Googling research papers. I'm like, man, I don't have patience to write down <laughs> bloody academic paper. But I started telling my story and I started talking about Steve and I started talking about community and all those things that I'd forgotten. Or maybe I just buried them deep and tried not to think about them. And, uh, it was an experience and I started writing a research paper and of course it turned into a book and you know, it was hard because I had to unpack a lot of things that I probably packed up maybe the wrong way, uh, but no, I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't know already, but getting a chance to reprocess it away yeah. from the event is a very helpful thing. It was incredible. I write every morning, man. Yeah. I write in my journal every morning it and was... I go, Oh, that, Got it. Yeah. <laughs> it's very yeah. helpful. It's very helpful. And, you know, I mean, don't tell your listeners, but I might have shed a tear or two while I was writing that book, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, I don't cry during the, I can make through ET, but it was tough. And I had to think about a friend that I lost and I had to think about community and what it meant. And it made me put it into perspective. 
And so I told the, you know, I wrote the book and sent it off to the guy in America said, you know, is this okay? And he said, this is a great story. You know, this is needed to be told. But what it really boiled down to is just a couple of things, you know, and like I said before, you're trying to eat the elephant. Keep it simple. It's about community. It's about love for community. It's about connection with people. It's about leadership, you know, and you just got to pop on Instagram or whatever, and everybody's got their own views about leadership and who's a leader and who isn't and why they aren't and why they are, you know. But to me, it was just about giving people hope, you know, and saying to them, we can give you another option, stick with us, and we're going to do this. And it's going to happen faster than you or I think. Um, that's leadership from my point of view. And it made me realize just what it was. So when you talk about Miami and you talk about, you know, you read reports and we're going to have to relocate 100 million people over the next, you know, I don't know what the numbers are. I'm, I'm not a climate scientist, so I don't know. But, you know, I sort of think, okay, well, you can think about that, but you're not going to get anywhere with that. It's not going to help you. But if you think about Betty Smith, who's been living on the coast for the past 50 years, and you think about what does she need? What's going to help her? And what's going to keep her connected with this community? And what is her community? Is it the old people around her? Or is it the young kid on the skateboard who rocks up every morning and, you know, asks her how she's doing? Or, you know, is it the shop on the corner that bakes bread and, and hands out the leftovers to the homeless afterwards, you know? Is that the community that we're looking after? Well, once you start talking in that language... You're not worried about 100 million people needing to move. You're worried about Mrs. Smith or Mr. Jones or Osher. You know, you're worried about, well, what's Osher need in five years' time? What's Osher need in 10 years' time? That's easier to deal with because all I got to do is ask you. Mm-hmm. I got to say, Osher, I got a pen and paper right here. Let's talk. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you need? What, what, is, what does Wolfie need? Mm-hmm. You know, what's he need to get him through life? That's easier to do. It's complicated. Hmm. But it's an easier question than how are we going to move 100 million people? And not 100 million people who are in wealthy countries like That's Australia true. is the eighth wealthiest country in the world. And we have a extraordinary safety net of universal health care. That alone is a thing that factors enormously into this. My wife's Fiji and I spent a lot of my, my year in Fiji working on a television show out there. And even in just the few years that I've been going over there, and I, I talked about this on this show a bit, people living in a suburb of Melbourne or Brisbane or Sydney, 10 miles, 10 kilometres from the coastline, they couldn't care. They don't understand what a sea level rise is, mm. all right? They get smoke. They get fire. They understand that. I go to Fiji and where we shoot Bachelor in Paradise, right, there's a seawall, which is not uncommon. Um, there's a seawall that's been built to, I don't know, just kind of like make a little more space for the resort to be. Four, five metres out from the seawall, there's a 20 metre tall, fully mature coconut palm sitting in the water. Wow. Coconut palms don't grow to 20 metres tall sitting in water. They grow to 20 metres tall sitting in a sand dune, all right? The beach used to be way over there, not here. Mm. We drive past five villages on the way to work every morning. Seeing the sea level, seeing the erosion around the coast, the and you know a village life. You live, you know, from here to that wall away from the. That's just how you because that's mm. where your food is. You fish. Mm. It's utterly, utterly harrowing, and we're talking 
Fiji is, I guess, in terms of the Pacific Islands, it's okay. It's doing all right as far as, you know, money. Mm. Um, but there's places like I've been to Tonga, man, there's not a lot going on there and it's a low country. Yeah. And there's, you know, it's a, it's essentially still, it's a feudal society. Yeah. There's still a king and the, the king takes tithings. You've got 100 pigs. My son's having a birthday party. I'll take 10 of your pigs. That's, that's <laughs> the deal. All right, king owns all the land. Yeah. And it's a country like that, which doesn't have you, doesn't have a Lord Mayor like Steve, doesn't have it doesn't have Anna Bly in an Akubra, yep. you know, exactly. fighting the fucking fight. Doesn't she did have, great. Doesn't have the Red Cross, doesn't have insurance mm. companies flying in. It's just people who have the one T-shirt that they are wearing yeah. and the one pair of boardies that they are wearing who eat fish out of the ocean every day because that's there's no supermarket. Yeah. What do you do there? Yeah. <laughs> It's complicated, eh? You know, it, it's really, really tough. And I guess the only thing that I can say, Osher, is um, there's an answer. There's an answer there. Somebody's got to find it and somebody's got to do it. I'm nothing special. There's a lot of Jamies out there that can do what I do. I was, I was fortunate to be put in a situation that just worked to my strengths there's people out there that can come up with ideas and solutions. And hopefully my experience helps someone say, hang on, hang on, I got this. You know, I, I, I know what to do. People are resilient and people are smart. And when you look a community in the eye, you know, this is what did it for me is you look a community in the eye and they're desperate. You better believe you're going to come up with a solution. Yeah. And you're going to deliver it, you know, and there's, there's people that can do it. It's not easy. I, I'm, well, grant them, I'm bloody hell. I mean, you know, I, I'm a healthy dude, but I had to go to the hospital at some point, a couple, you know, before the opening day, I had some heart trouble, you know, I was working seven days a week and it burned me out. You know, I'm still burned out a bit, you know, it takes its toll. My best mate died and, uh, I, I think part of that reason is he just, he gave his life for his community and that's that. He wouldn't change it, but that's the price you pay. Yeah. But there's people that can do that. Yeah. You know, I'm not special. Steve's, uh, I mean, I say he's special, but there's Steve's out there, you know. But they are unfortunately rarer and rarer when it comes to national leaders. But I do think that in local councils, we do have leaders like that. You do. Because- the price you have to pay and the bullshit you have to deal with to become a leader at a higher level is just people who- Who would want to like, do it? I'm not doing that. Who would want to do it? Why would I get anywhere yeah. near that? That's not for me. So yeah. I, it's really unfortunate the political system we have is keeping the right person for the job out of the right. job, which really sucks, but that's where it is. Yep. Um, I don't doubt that you you dealt with a lot of your own health issues around around that and you know no one comes out of this sort of stuff unscathed, but I'm sure people are listening- in communities, there's some communities who are aware of it in Australia, and there's some communities who are in just utter, utter denial. I'm pretty sure is it Shell Harbour City Council or someone like that. Basically, someone came in and said, and oh, no, it was Gosford, they came in and said, if your property is within these particular zones, you are within a metre of the high tide mark. When you sell it, you have to let the people know that such and such. And so property value just plummeted. Yeah. So they petitioned the local government and they changed that rule. <laughs> and there's another council, there's another city council, I think it's Shell Harbour, I think, where they just basically reinterpreted the facts that all the scientists gave them yeah. so that their property values would 
would stay. If you live in a coastal community in Australia, Central Coast, so Gosford, Terrigal, that sort of thing, or Gold Coast, particularly the lower lying parts of the Gold Coast, what are you looking at? Because that's mm. probably, you know, Bribey Island, shit. Yeah. Bribey Island. Bribie. I've just spent, I just spent the last two weeks 50 centimetres above the high yeah. tide mark looking at it all going, every single thing I see here will go. Yeah. Everything I'm looking at will go and there's nothing I can do about yeah. it. I was talking about it on the show, like I'm trying to be with it in the same way that I look at my dogs, my stupid dogs who bark <laughs> too much, in the same way I look at them and go, you'll die one day. We will see you getting older and slower and sicker mm. and one day as a family we'll go, okay, today's the day, Frank, and we're going to take him up to the vet and he'll die. And we knew that when we got them as puppies. Yep. You know? So that's the only way I can kind of be with it. That's the only blueprint I have to deal with that emotional yep. sense of I can love this now but it is going to go and it's going to be horrible when it goes. And then in the words of a fantastic psych that I once saw and then there's the day after and then there's the week after. And then there's a month after, the year after, two years after, five years after, 10 years after. There is time on the other side of that that changes. Mm. And just trying to be with that. That's the only way that I can be, you know, there was a time when I wouldn't have been able to have this conversation with you. Yeah. Quite significantly, I've had opportunities to have these kind of conversations before. Yeah. But I couldn't even sit here. I'm sitting here right now and I'm feeling anxiety all through my body, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm able to have this conversation with yeah. you because it's an action in accordance with my values, which is the only thing that actually works yes. to make me feel any Well, there's better. an answer. Yeah. There's an answer at the end of well, it. Well, it's, yeah. it's us having a conversation which will amplify this message yeah. to people that need to hear it who might be living in communities that have no fucking idea how right. their situation 100% will change. It's not an if, it's a when. Exactly. That's important. And they may not have been informed by their local city councils because of people who go, my property values are just devaluing. Mm. I'll just change the rules and we'll fudge these numbers. And so now my golf course is still worth a lot of money. And your golf course is going to go underwater, pal. Mm. That's the end of the story, mm. you know. So if you do live in one of these quite vulnerable communities in Australia, what are, you, what are you looking at? What are the next 20, 30, 40 years looking at? It could be your retirement home. It could be all of your life savings being plunged into this real estate. What are you looking at? Mm. It's a huge question. I think you're right. There's an inevitability there. Yeah. Again, I'm not a climate scientist, but it's happening. It, it, and be it, you know, sea level rise or just disasters, you mm. know, seeing bushfires, unprecedented sort of stuff. I, stronger and stronger storms. Stronger and stronger. You'll, by the time you've had three cyclone years in a row, you'll be like, you know, maybe this starting, is, beachside view is not as good for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and if that's the new way of living, we need to adapt. And um, we need to come up with solutions. And we can't have, it, it comes back to the leadership thing. You, you can't have lip service or denial or anything. You got you to gotta fess up. You got to stand up and say, this shit is happening. I don't want it to happen. I don't None want bushfires. That's right. But people like yourself, Osher, you need to know that someone's going to handle this. Yeah. Someone's going to step up and say, I got this, guys. You know, I, I, can, I can do something here. You need to know that. And communities need to know that, that it isn't hopeless. You know, when you, you talk about hope, you know, you walk into Grantham a few days after the flood and, mate, there wasn't a whole lot of hope. The, the hope meter was pretty low. Leaders have to come in and offer that. You know, they got to fill up the tank. Mm. Somebody's got to do that. Yeah. Somebody's got to stand up and say, hang on, hang on, hang on. Osher, 
everybody else. I, I hear you. I, I feel it. There's anxiety there. There's concern. We got some plans. And this is what that plan is right here. Read it. Make notes in red and send it back to me. Somebody's got to do that. Until somebody does that. And, you know, like I said, there are people probably doing that now. And there's probably people in these bushfire communities saying, okay, I hope there are anyways, saying, okay, we put this fire out, we clean up, what's the next step? We need to think about that. We need to think about it now. And we need to start pushing whomever we need to push to give us the money and the support. We need to work with the media. We need to make sure, you know, it's something I haven't talked a lot about with Grantham. The media was our biggest ally. As long as we kept Australian eyes on Grantham, we were going to win because the federal government couldn't turn their back on us. The state government couldn't turn their back on us as long as we, they knew where we were heading and everyone, would, everyone was pushing in the right direction. And we did that. And there were times where we had some almighty fights with Anna Bly, and, but she was ultimately good to us. And Julie Gillard at the time was very good to us. But had we not applied that pressure through the media and constantly in people's face, they might not have been. And I can understand why they wouldn't, you know? I mean, they're politicians. But someone in these communities has to step up and say, we're going to get this job done and take away that anxiety that you feel, you know, and say, you might still feel anxious. I can't deal with all of your issues, but I can deal with this one. Mm. Give it to me. Give me that issue. I'll take it off your shoulders, make your day a little bit lighter. That's what you got to do. We may not want what's going to happen, but as long as when our kids ask, and I've had these conversations with with my oldest, when, when our kids ask, like, what's going to happen? Yeah. Being able to say anything is better than I don't know. Absolutely. And you mentioned that communities start to fall apart when there is no future, when they mm. feel no future. I don't think any country on this planet can afford to have that fracturing start to happen. If you look at it, we talked about insurance companies before. If you look at it from an economic standpoint, if you're looking at wiping out, uh, I think it's something like 1.4 or it's quite a huge amount of our country. I think it's maybe it's around a million, million and a half Australians that will need to move. Yeah. That's a lot of investment money. That's a lot of like, this is my biggest asset. This is how I'm going to support myself through my mm. old age when I've got my, my largest amount of healthcare costs. If that vanishes because of the state system that we have, unless we're going to end universal healthcare, which yeah. I don't think we will, that's a humongous burden then oh. on the state to then support this Absolutely. person. All right. So it makes sense economically. But even if you absolutely, even if you go like, well, the seas aren't rising. Well, fuck you, no. If, yeah. Even if you, you know, just from the numbers point of view, if you look at it and go, how are we going to keep these people and their money as little a burden on the state as possible? It's going to have to be some sort of equity mm. in how we get them from their beachside home in Gosford next to a golf course that's in a wetland because they're all in wetlands because yeah. it's flat. <laughs> right. um, next to a golf course that's in a wetland right. that they've Typical. sunk their retirement money exactly. into. Exactly, yeah. How are we going to protect them yeah. and that asset for the 30 years of life that they can't work for? They're no longer fit enough to work, mm. but they're not going to die. Mm. Our country can't absorb that amount of people who are suddenly going to be- That's right. You know, so it, there's going to have to be something- where would you, if you had to do it, say, for example, if you had to do it for, let's say, Terrigal or somewhere like that in the Central Coast, which is north of Sydney, yep. very low-lying area, if you had to look at that and go, well, there's no house on a hill, what are you going to say to people who've lived, grown up their whole life by the ocean yeah. and because the ocean's a 
place that people want to live near. Right. The next 20 k's inland is just full of houses. There's nowhere for them to go to still be near the ocean. Right. What do you do? Right. Difficult question. You know, people are connected with where they live and they're there for a reason. And if that land doesn't exist anymore, where do you put them that keeps them whole? In Grantham, it was a disaster. So there was an immediate threat and it was a tangible, real threat. You know, people yeah. lost lives. When you talk about sea level rise, it's this slow grind and, and people, well, you know, human nature, you know, until that water comes into my bedroom, I'm staying, you know, how do you do that? It's a very complex thing, but I'll tell you what you can't do. Wait till the last minute. You know, you've got to start planning. You've got to warm these people up because they're going to have to move. They got to be ready and you can't wait. So you've got to start to talk to them about what they need. What, you know, what, what, what do you want to do? How are we going to do this? What does the future look like? And work through that. There's options. Relocation fit what we did at Grantham. Or maybe, maybe we should say we made relocation fit for Grantham. There are other solutions, you know. People might want to live by the ocean. Maybe there's no higher ground. Well, if there's areas in the community, you might be able to fit them in different areas and blend them back into the community in areas that are safe. They may not be, you know, 100 meters up, but they're safe. Or maybe you move that community in different ways or different places or, you know, I mean, there's different options. And the one thing you can't do is bury your head in the sand. You will come up with a solution eventually that people are happy with or that most people are happy with and you deliver that. It gets back to hope. Mm. If you show people that there's a way and maybe maybe you end up with a solution that isn't, I can move away from the coast. You know, I love the beach and I love the ocean, but you know what? This is bigger than, than me taking a stroll on the beach. I need something different. You've succeeded in something right there and you've beaten the problem in a way. Mm. And that person then doesn't feel like they've been relocated. They feel like they're moving to a better place. And they feel like, I've let go of this thing that's given me anxiety. I know that sea's coming in and that terrifies me, but I love the ocean. Well, now I'm in a position where, you know, I can, I can come down, take the 10 minute drive or take the bus down to the beach, have a stroll and go back home, put my head down and I'm safe. Mm. There's a positive there. But we might, that takes time. We might have to make the beach. We might that's have the to only make thing, the beach. The, that's right. When you think about some of the projections for sea level rise, like, nah, I mean, yeah. there's going to be no beach. Gets a bit <laughs> scary, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but this is what we're looking at, you know, and, and, yeah. and this is in our country alone. I mean, you know, you look at the answers. I mean, what's a bushfire of the sea? It's a storm surge from a, a massive storm, yeah. you know, it's, and that gives people an idea of, oh, this is how high the water can come. South Vietnam is less than three meters above the high tide mark, Jeez. all of it. Yeah. All right. Middle of the Euphrates River going up in between Iraq and Syria. You know, it's really low. Mm. All right. You're talking about moving people in those parts of the world, people who, uh, you know, there's a bit of history about, you know, yeah. how connected we are and what yes. we'll do to hold on to our right to stay yes. here. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we're going to have to, man. Going to have to. There's no, but there's no, as you mentioned, you can't wait. No. You can't wait and you've got to be aware of it. So having that conversation, I have the conversation with my in-laws, mm. you know, I mean, thankfully, thankfully they're open to it and just letting them know is like, this is your major asset. This is your retirement yeah. right here. 
don't wait. Yeah. Because if no one's coming up with a plan as to how this asset will be equitably protected and if there's no absorption or as the property value starts to decline rapidly once these storms get more severe, you know, your, say for example, for argument's sake, your $1 million property quickly becomes an $800,000 property. One storm later, it's a yeah. half a million dollar property. Then you're- There's like, no coming back. What happened after the GFC? Then you're in Kansas yeah. buying a house for a dollar. There you go. You know, because why would I want to live there? Yeah. You know, the sewers don't work anymore because yeah. the sea level's up too high. That's it. That's just it. How are you going to protect those people? How are you going to protect that asset? Thankfully, they're open to it. And because they are, they're Fijian and they spend a fair bit of time over yeah. there, they see it. They can see it. They see it with their eyes. They're not. So they're not blind. They're not blind. Right. They can see it with their own eyes. That's that's an important step. I mean, (laughs) you know, once you start to acknowledge that and say, you know, there's some problems here. What are my options? And then you start to think, well, what can I live with? And then you start to go into your community and say, hey, hey, you know, I think I can live with this. And your neighbor says, yeah, I think I can do this. And the, and the leader stands up and says, is that what we want to do? Uh, all right. Well, let's let's start putting pen to paper and and let's do something. Let's move in the right direction. And I think it looks different for every community. And, and I think it depends on what that community values. And, you know, that's how we started with Grantham is what do you value? What do you want? You know, what, what do you like about this? What don't you like about Grantham, mm. you know? Because people can make a home anywhere as long as they have the people they love around them and the people that they care about them and they got their favorite coffee shop or they can, you know, get their, you know, mangoes, you know, slushy or whatever it is that they need. People can live anywhere. People are resilient. But that switch that says I can leave my home, I can deal with that. That's a switch that people need help doing. And they need to believe that there's something on the horizon. An alternative that will be okay. That's right. That's right. So once everyone got settled into Grantham, New Grantham, yeah. it's still called Grantham, I'm guessing. Yeah. We, we thought about New Grantham or Grantham. We, we just never ate that elephant. <laughs> we just left it in I'm kind of grateful that you didn't put the new in front right. of it because it's still the community. Exactly. The community is a thing with a name. There's nothing new about it other than the shiny roads. and Yeah. yeah. Exactly. When you know people got settled. Yeah. Was that sense of community, that sense of neighborliness, was that all, for the most part, preserved? Yeah. So this was kind of the interesting thing for me is, you know, in the few years after Grant, I would still, you know, tidy up things. I would be out there. But once we sort of got rid of all the blocks and houses were being built, I had to get away from Grantham mentally. And, you know, I was burned out and uh, I'd put more than my soul into that project. So I just cross my fingers and off you go. You know, it's kind of like the kid flying the nest. You know, okay, you know, little bird, go fly. And then of course Steve died. And that just put the nail in the coffin, so to speak, on my thoughts about Grantham. And of course, like I didn't, like I said before, I didn't think about it much. But when I went back to Grantham and I called up friends, you know, I looked at my phone, I said, geez, I still got John's contacts. I still got, you know, Jimmy's contacts give them a ring, see how they're doing. And boy, well, that was hard. You know, you talk about, I don't think I suffer from mental health issues like maybe some of your listeners or yourself in terms of that chronic thing. And you know, I'm, I'm generally pretty good. But to press go on that phone call was really, really hard because it was opening up something that I had long since buried. And But boy, when they pick up the phone, they say, Jamie, you know, hey, how you, how you doing? You know, great to hear you. You know, fantastic. You know, and then I say, well, how is Grantham? How you doing? They said, well, you know, 
I shouldn't be out moving so many bags of cement. Yeah, I'm doing my knees in and, you know, boy, it's dry out here. And, you know, ah, you know, old Sally down the street, she's getting older. She needs a bit of help. Once they start talking like that, you know, it's the same old Grantham. You know, he's not saying, oh, you know, when it rains out here, we're glad there's no rain because, man, I can't sleep when it rains. Or, oh, you know, old, old Mrs. Smith down the street, she's just, Oh, she's struggling. Her, her son committed suicide or something like that. When they're not talking about that shit, you know it's worked. And I called up a few people and they're like, mate, it's great. And one of the women I spoke to, she was one of the community leaders. And I said, what do you think about the relocation? She said, man, it was fantastic. And the speed at which she did it, that was key. And she said, you know, mental health, let's, let's talk about that. You know, and she said, nobody committed suicide. We didn't have a single suicide. And I remember in the weeks afterwards, you get all sorts of experts flying into Grantham from all over the world telling you how to do your job. And they're like, you're going to have to deal with suicide. You're going to have to deal with mental health, alcoholism, domestic violence, all these sorts of things. And, you know, there was some alcoholism afterwards and I saw it and there was certainly mental health issues. But the, when she said, no one's died, no one's taken their own life, I thought, you know. That's pretty good. You know, I, I can't put that on my resume, but I feel like that was in, in part of what we did, you know. When people start talking like that eight years after you did it, it was good for me to hear that. So Grantham now is, you could go, I can take you out there. Next time you come to Brisbane, I'll take you out there. I'd and love to. Show you. It looks like any old town. What's, any the, old town. what's the bike ride out there like? We could ride our bikes. I ride bikes. We could I do know. That. I can tell by your watch you ride bikes. <laughs> yeah, you did. You uh, saw the gun. Yeah, and you've got the quad lock on your phone, man. <laughs> yeah, I just scoped the moment you walked in. I'm like, there's, there's Guilty a man. as charged. Guilty there's, as charged. There's a man that knows what a power <laughs> meter is. <laughs> there's a man do, who man. counts his cadence. Um, <laughs> setting up the Zwift on the Apple TV uh, to this Done afternoon. It. Did it a few months ago. How is it on the Apple TV? Is it all right? It's, well, I don't do it on Apple TV. I do it on my laptop. Oh, right. So I'm going to put it on the Apple TV. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Mate, just, just last week I rode through Switzerland. It's the best, fantastic. man. I love Zwift. It's amazing. I've Swiss had Alps. one of the guys who runs Zwift on this show. Really? He's fucking awesome, dude. Oh, my. Yeah, yeah. It's super good. It's pretty cool. But a community. Look at that. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So uh, cycling aside, it sounds to me like the skill set that you have is, you know, I, I really hope that you're able to talk to a lot of people about what you've did mm. and what you learned in mm. order to, as you mentioned, help the people that are working on this now, mm. being challenged by these incredibly complicated solutions and help them to eat that elephant a bite at a yeah. time. Because, you know, when you look at a, a wealthy country like ours or, or North America, and then you look at somewhere like Fiji or Tonga or Samoa or Micronesia, and it, and it really does give you an idea, I guess, of a sense of, of how important place is to history and culture. I mean, absolutely. this white culture in this country is 240 years old, mm. right? You look at a country like Micronesia, you're talking like thousands and thousands and thousands of years of, of history, of place. Of, oh, no, that rock right there, that's where the thing happened, that legend we yeah. talk about, it's that rock. Right there. That's right. <laughs> that rock's going to be a scuba site. Yeah, crazy. By 2060. So how do you preserve that culture? That heritage. Yeah. How do you preserve that heritage? Mm. It's not a, in a museum. It's like, no, this place is our culture. This place is our community. This place is what defines us as a people. Yeah. That's a big elephant, man. <laughs> it's, a, it's a whole herd of elephants, Osher. Yeah. It is a whole herd. But, you know, when you think of, I'm a bit of a history buff, I suppose. When you think of history, 
humans adapt and they, they rebuild. I mean, look at the Jewish faith, you know, they've, how many different homes have they had in history, you know, and people, it's the beautiful thing about humans is they find a way and what was their history becomes today, you know, and it becomes, well, okay, I can let that rock go, but I need a new rock. I got to find a new rock and that rock over there is going to be where we decided to start fresh, you know. Um, humans can do that. You and I can do that. I left America, you know. I, I loved where I grew up. I love my family. And I walked away from all that to be here. And I wouldn't change it. But shit, I had to do a lot of thinking. You know, you did it. You, you moved to the States, you know, and it isn't easy. But you got up every morning, you, you put your socks on, you brushed your teeth, you walked out the door and you smiled. That's what humans are. That's what makes us who we are. It doesn't mean we have to forget. I think about my hometown. I was just saying it yesterday, I'm on Google Earth checking out, you know, the high school I went to and showing my kids and Google Earth's a fantastic, Street View's a fantastic thing. See what the pizza joint's doing. Oh, it's still open. Oh, great. But uh, you don't have to forget that. You know, you'll never forget it because at the end of the day, it's, it's memories. It's locked in. It's not a place. It's in your, your head and in your heart. Humans can recreate that every day. You know, special things happen every day. And, you know, you've got young son and, you know, you've got a teenage girl. Yeah, she's nearly 16. Fantastic. Fantastic. And she's just on that cusp. You know, she's going to fill up the backpack soon and say, I'm going. Mm -hmm. I got the passport. I'm going. And she's going to see that world, and she's not going to come back and say, oh, what a horrible place. She's going to come back, and she's going to say, what a fantastic place this is, you know? And that's going to write her story. Hmm. And so what is her home? Well, her home's always where you are and where her mama is, but, you know, it doesn't mean she can't go elsewhere. It doesn't mean hmm. she can't live elsewhere. It doesn't mean she can't create memories elsewhere. And that's what humans are, you know. I'm probably getting a little too deep now. Not but, at all, because uh, this is. But these are the questions that we need to answer, yeah. and we need to think about. Like right now in 2020, we've got to think real hard about this because in less time than I've been alive, this planet will look completely different mm. to what it does right now. Mm. And it's just being an acceptance that that is going to happen, and then what's the next right thing to do? Right. That's all we can do. Right. That is all we can do because. Denying that it's going to happen and then not having the next thing to do will just lead us to chaos. Mm. Absolutely. You, there's no sense, buddy, burying <laughs> your head in the sand. <laughs> Shit. I mean, if the, it's one thing I'm, I don't do. Uh, well, my wife might say differently, but you got to get up and what do they say? Eat the frog. You know, you got to take on that biggest, the biggest file at work. Don't worry about the little files. Just grab the big file, sort that shit out, because that's the one that's bothering you anyways, yeah, you know. Get Deal with it. One. Yeah. Deal with it. And uh, I hope this sort of stuff shakes the bag a bit of mm. the people who, because ultimately as people, we will just go, you cannot lead us. Whoever you are, yep. whichever party you are yep. ahead of, I don't care. You don't have what it takes to lead this nation mm. through what is happening and what is going to happen. Mm. We need leaders that will. And we will vote for leaders that mm. have that. We are going to vote for people who have that thing in their eye that your friend had. Yep. Because if you don't have that, we know that you can't handle this. And if you can't handle this, then we don't want you. We don't want you. That's, that's the, right. That's the end of it. That's right. That's really that's the end right. of it. And, you know, I mean, not to get on politics, I try to talk about, you know, 
an American not talking about politics. That's kind of rare. But sometimes leaders, you know, you think, oh, this person doesn't have it, you know, anybody else. But something clicks, something mm. happens, you know. I Anna Bly, you know, I don't want to talk about it too much. But after that flood, you know, she looked good. She did great. She cried on TV. And, you know, people think, oh, politicians shouldn't do that, show emotion. But, mate, people love that because it showed she was connected. Yeah. You know, and, of course, you know, don't need to talk about what happened, the elections and that afterwards. But there was a moment there where you thought, geez, this is something. Yeah. So never count anybody out. You know, that's why I, I don't talk about politics too much. But... People are capable of incredible things and, and change, you know, and, and waking up one morning saying, hang on, hang on, hang on. We're on the wrong track here. Yeah. Let's get on the right track, you know. It if, can happen. If there, was, if there was one thing that we could do as a nation, I would love us to just allow our leaders the space to change their minds. Yes. Because- Well said. At this point, the people who are in, in charge have banged on for so long down this one line if they say one word yeah. the other way, suddenly you flip-flop and then it's like, no, man. There you go. We're allowed to wake up the next morning and go, oh, hang on. Yeah. Oh, this is makes – everything's different now. Yeah. Just, if we just allowed leaders to change their minds, yeah. I think we might be – we might do a lot People better. People screw up every day, man. You have a lot of important work to do over the next couple of decades. I'm sure over the next few weeks, um, <laughs> people are going to be calling you to come and help them out in their towns. Yeah, well, in, I'm happy to – in New South Wales or Victoria, I'm sure people have- uh, Happy think, to lend what I can thinking for of what you. it's worth. I'm so grateful we had this conversation, mate. Thank you so much for making the effort Thank to, you. to make it here today. I, I really appreciate it, buddy. No, it's been great. That was Jamie Simmons. Look out for his book. Um, it's going to be incredible. He is an amazing guy and he's doing incredible work. And I'm bizarrely, I feel a man of hope after listening to that. And I think it's important to remember that because in my brain, I had, I saw what I, what we see on the TV now. When I had these things in my brain, I would flash pictures and I would see, I would see, you know, the fires and I would see the floods and I would see the ocean swallowing communities. But then after that, there was oblivion. I think that was the most terrifying thing that I couldn't picture what life would be like afterwards. I couldn't imagine what life would be like afterwards. But talking to Jamie, I know for the countries that are lucky enough and have the ability to, there will be life afterwards and we now have to help everyone to figure out a way of what that life after looks like because this is it my loves my friends this is it we've got no choice the choice has been made for us all we can do is accept and adapt and figure it out from here if you need anything send me an email send us your email at gmail.com i couldn't have made this episode today without my producer rachel barrett um, without Andy Ma, my audio producer, without the good people at the Batuta Advocate who let me use their studio. Thank you, guys. Um, thank you, Mike Mills, for making the music. Thank you, Audrey Griffin, for getting me here. Thank you to how many doctors is it now? One, two, three, four, five, six separate, six separate um, psychologists and psychiatrists I've seen since this all started. But thank you. You all know who you are. So thank you. Thank you to the people that made the medication I'm on right now. And thank you for listening. Honestly, thank you for listening. Because if I wasn't able to get here every week and talk about this stuff, that's that's me doing push-ups, you know. That really is. That's me doing push-ups and, and getting, you know, keeping fit, keeping my brain able to do this. Um, if you can give 
please consider giving to the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal, frrr.org.au. Charlie and Will over at TOFOP have a fantastic um, GoFundMe going on. TOFOP.com is where they are. And please consider the RFS in your area and donating to them. Don't forget who you vote for. Let them know. Send them a fax. Send them an email. Write them a letter. Send them a phone call. Just tell them. And um, if you know someone at Gumtree, um, get them on board. (laughs) Or get them in touch with me. I'll talk to them about it. Your Ace, thank you so much for listening. Look after yourself until we speak next week. Uh, On Friday. We'll talk on Friday. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 